was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, Series 3, Episode 3. Do make yourself at home here in the cubbyhole, get the fancy coffee machine started, and hide away your romantic liaisons in a conveniently large wardrobe, because we've got a mission to be getting on with, and that mission is discussing some of the best aspects of the James Bond franchise. The only thing we ask of you is to sit back, relax, enjoy the show, go back to any episodes you may have missed in Series 1 and 2, and having done all of that, do consider leaving us some feedback on your podcasting site of choice. It helps us spread the show to a wider Bond community, but most importantly, it lets us know if you've been enjoying what we do. You can also get in touch with us directly if you've got a Bond question for the Q-Branch segment or just a comment you'd like to share, then feel free to send it in on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or via email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. Now, in our last episode, we spoke to Ariel Levy, who provided us with a fascinating look into his time as the assistant director on The Spy Who Loved Me. We also discussed our 007 best henchman, but what have we got to look forward to this week? Well, let's jump right in with the usual hosting team. Firstly, he's a man who spent a lifetime running and he always gets away. But with this podcast, he's feeling something that makes him want to stay. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Were you pleased that the 007 store finally has some affordable merchandise? Yes, the 007 store seems to actually be listening to people this time. And we've got some really nice um, sort of T-shirts that's kind of hark back to the old bomb posters and, and have sort of links to the, you know, the kind of Connery and Roger Moore designs that we used to see in the artwork. So I wouldn't normally plug the 007 store, but on this occasion, you know, if you do get a chance, if you're looking for a birthday or or just for, you know, the, the Bond fan in your life, then then do check it out. Um, we always do this every week, so it's our usual shout-outs. I wanted to say a really quick thank you to Lani Spencer on Facebook, who gave us a really nice recommendation, actually. So she said, fantastic chat, 10 out of 10. So thanks very much, Lani, for your recommendation. And of course, our 007 best looked, in our first episode, looked back at the um, the best femme fatales. Um, and we had a great response to this on Twitter. So Major Dexter Smythe was um, very vocal about Electric King. And we also got a lot of interaction about the actual definition of what a femme fatale should be. So Spy Hards, The Wizard of Ice and Josh Cooper were all discussing, you know, whether Irma Bunt and Rosa Kleber are actually kind of more just sort of dangerous women rather than femme fatales. But we th- we think that they, they more reflect the sort of the femme fatale of the Bond universe. Really. So, but thank you guys for, for all your thoughts and, and reviews. It's always great to interact with our fellow Bomb fans on Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, well, I mean, mine had a bit of an issue with um, Irma Bunt certainly being a femme fatale. Uh, and, and yeah, Rosa Club, you could sort of branch in the same bracket. I guess we were looking at more the sort of female villainous figures. But femme fatale just sounds so much nicer, doesn't it? Our top femme fatales. Can you, what would be the worst British accent to say uh, femme fatale in? Our old accent from where we're all from would be terrible, wouldn't it? Femme Fatals. That sounds more like Sean Bean. That, yeah, that did come yeah, out as Sean Bean. I'm having some trouble with my Femme Fatals. 
No, I th- he I did think... in that film, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, no, I think Brummy would be the worst. I think Finn Vitals. Finn Vitals. Martin, what are you thinking? I think you should do your native Scotland, Phil. Right, I'll, I'll give it a go. Aren't? The Finn Vitals. Wasn't that that Scottish guy from The Great Escape who gets shot? I was aiming more for Scotty from Star Trek. He sounded like Pippin from Lord of the Rings, that. It comes from Finn Vitals. I'm getting one. Actually, maybe Scouse would be the worst. Uh, Finn Fitzals. We need to move on from this before Phil alienates every uh, city in the UK. And secondly, he's a man who doesn't want to waste a waking moment. He doesn't want to sleep. He's in so strong and so deep. And so, dear listeners, are you. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very good. Thank you for uh, asking, Martin. Um, on sort of less affordable Bond memorabilia and merchandise this week, did we see that Pierce Brosnan uh, is actually going to start an art exhibition? Uh, and this is after it turned out he sold a portrait he painted of Bob Dylan for $1.4 million at a charity auction. So did any, did we know this? Did we know Pierce Brosnan was such a, well, uh, expensive artist, let's say, if, uh, if not a talented one? Yeah, no, there, there is a lot of talk about this on Twitter. So I did know that he was starting his um, his own kind of art empire, let's say. So I'm not sure whether this is his pitch to be the next Bond villain, you know, some sort of art megalomaniac who wants to take over the world. But no, all, all credit to him. You know, I, I think we all needed a project in lockdown and, and clearly this was Pierce's attempt, you know, to broaden his, uh, his skills. Well, he is fairly secluded, isn't he, in Hawaii? That could be his Bond villain thing, couldn't he? Rather than a cat, just a coop of chickens. Well, yeah, maybe he's just going to be sat there stroking a chicken on his uh, Hawaiian aquatic base, which is a blind not with impressionist paintings as uh, Stromberg's Atlantis is, but with his own artworks. Do you think you can train killer chickens? Is this something that's doable? I mean, if Mike Myers ever does a fourth Austin Powers film, that's going to be the animal, isn't it? I wanted killer chickens that peck people's eyes out. Throw me a freaking bone here. Let's kick off the episode as ever with On The Scene, which is where we analyse a memorable moment from the Bond archives. And this time we're heading to Las Vegas to try and make sense of a character who almost certainly deserved more screen time. So to help us understand what happens, it's a man who always deserves more airtime. It is, of course, Mr. Alan Partridge. At Willard White's Phallic Vegas Casino, a seriously overdressed Sean Connery ogles some showgirls and catches a glimpse of Shady Tree's thousand-year-old stand-up act. Trying to find Willard White is like trying to find a virgin in a maternity ward. His act's so bad, Winton Kid going off the old geezer too early. We just adored your act, and we have a few suggestions. Meanwhile, Plenty O'Toole dumps a chubby loser who shot his ward and shoves a massive chest in on Bond's crap game. Hi, I'm Plenty. Well, of course you are. Plenty O'Toole. Named after your father, perhaps. Plenty loses a shit ton of his Peter Franks loot, Bond babbles on in crap speak, and Plenty puts out on the bloody spot. You handle those chips like a monkey handles coconuts. She unzips up in his swanky suite, but the bloody antil mob ruins it all. I'm afraid you've caught me with more than my hands up. Hey, what the hell is this? A pervert's convention or something? Hey, you can't do this to me. I got friends in this town. Splash! Exceptionally fine shot. I didn't know there was a pool down there. The mob bugger off for no apparent reason, and Bond looks out because Tiffany Case has been lounging in his bed all along. So Bond strips off and waddles over. There's a lot more to you than I had expected. You and me both, Case, he's got his pot belly and moves out and everything. 
Very Ireland. Thanks a lot, Alan. So diamonds are forever. Quite an oddity in the Bond franchise. Connery may have gained some weight, but he's regained some of the sparkle, as Martin Beswick would put it. He's clearly having fun on his return to the franchise, and he's helped by the playful, rompy nature of the script. And Lana Wood as Plenty O'Toole. We don't see much of her character, really, which is a bit of a shame because, as we've mentioned before, Tiffany Case starts the film with a lot of potential, but it isn't really fulfilled. So I think there is space for another Bond girl. So, yeah, it's sad that we don't see much of, well, I mean, we do see quite a lot of Lana Wood, but not a lot of Plenty O'Toole's character. For this scene, I I think that because there is a moment where Plenty O'Toole, I think it was a deleted scene where Plenty O'Toole actually returns to Bond's hotel room after she's been dropped in the swimming pool. And she actually finds Bond with Tiffany Case and then um, goes into a handbag and finds her address. And this then goes on to explain how she's then floating in the pool um, at Tiffany Case's property. So I, th- I think that's kind of missing from this scene because it explains a lot more about kind of Plenty O'Toole's demise and it kind of adds a bit more to her character. In this film, it's kind of Plenty O'Toole is the ditzy brunette, you know, she's she's played for laughs almost. And it's quite unfair to Lana Wood because you get the sense that she deserves to have a lot more in this scene. She deserves to be able to contribute a lot more. And, and she's kind of played for this sort of dumb character who's sort of vomit sunshine almost. You know, it's that sense of, you know, she's, she doesn't really add anything to it. She's just sort of there as eye candy for Bond almost. And it's, I, I think that she gets a very unfair treatment in this scene. You're right. She's a serious victim of deleted scenes is plenty of talk. There's also one where she actually does have a drink with Bond, which, of course, gets cut out and it just becomes a joke of, oh, should we grab a drink? And then next minute they're just getting undressed in his hotel room suite. But I'm going to give I'm going to do something I don't characteristically do here, which is give credit to uh, Tom Mankiewicz, because actually a combination of his comedy in the script and, of course, the actors who are playing these roles, they create a really vivid supporting cast, not just Lana Wood as um, Plenty, but uh, Leonard Bahar as Shady Tree as well. And, of course, Bruce Glover Putter Smith as Winton Kidd. But even though we don't see much of it, we get a real sense of her character. We sort of start wondering, where is she from? She's not a sort of typical Vegas kind of hooker you know she's she has that line to the the chubby guy she dumps i'll see you next year she's clearly only there once a year she's this sort of sad good time girl on holiday who once a year gets to come to vegas and kind of perform this role of someone who you know likes sort of hooking up with the high rollers and sort of enjoying the swanky vegas role which is very much what it was as a sort of american holiday destination and she just has the serious bad luck of wandering across the wrong guy at the wrong time i.e bond yeah, do you think that Plenty of Tools almost like a, an early socialite? She's kind of, she's in sort of that high society of the kind of circles that Bond moves in. I think it's just because Vegas is a much more democratic gambling place than anywhere else. She's only gambling with everyone else's money, who she sort of hooks up with. I mean, she leaves the guy when he runs out of cash. Um, but, but that is Vegas. It's not these swanky European casinos. So I don't think she's part of that glamorous jet set of, of you know, women sort of following that exclusive world that Bond normally moves in. I think this is the much more working class side of that. I mean, they hit you over the head with the Vegas cheesiness to get that, don't they? Just the establishing shots and about three different cutaways to chorus girls from about a mile away because you can't get too close in 1971. 
Yeah, and I think she's a very different character, isn't she, to the ones that we've seen in previous Bond films, which is why I think the deleted scenes are even more of a, well, I was going to say tragedy. It's not really a tragedy. <laughs> the film is not good enough for me to say that. Uh, but it, it's really disappointing that we don't see enough of her character because then her death is quite... It's quite a shocking death, isn't it? And when I was watching it when I was younger, I could feel like it was shocking, uh, but maybe I didn't even understand who the character was because there isn't that uh, logical link, is there, in the in the way that it's edited? Yeah, I think that's why it's so unfair because we never really get enough time to make a connection with Plenty O'Toole. And again, it's kind of that slightly crass name that she has, you know, that obviously where Bond makes a joke about it immediately, you know, it's, again, it's kind of playing into the idea that she is just being played for laughs almost, which is, again is rather unfair to what the character is there for and obviously what Lana, because Lana Wood does a really good performance, I think. I think we should give a lot of credit to her in terms of how she portrays that because again, she's not really got a huge amount to work with. It kind of, it doesn't really make sense to me why they would, you know, leave in the scenes that they did and then cut the scenes later on which actually add more to her character it seems a bit unfair to Lana Wood and to Plenty as a as a character it is a major problem of this film isn't it that it sort of does prize the japery above the actual making sense of the storyline and you're right Lana Wood like Rick Eckland does a perfectly great job of playing that character as written it's just a regressive poorly served character in the script and of course in the editing um, but just in terms of the plot line around them as well, it, it's just amazing that Wynton Kidd end up killing Shady Tree too early. Because after the business at the funeral parlour, surely the smuggling chain knows that something's gone wrong and that there's a dodgy link and therefore the alarm should have been sounded. But no one really seems to be after Bond in any major way. I love how as well Bond is such a sort of indestructible, invincible gambler, but even in a total game of luck like craps, he seems to be doing incredibly well. I mean, I know we try and build in the fact that he clearly knows how to spread his bets and like play the, uh, the table well but still like the fact that he's just able to roll these numbers he is literally the luckiest gambler in the world i reckon it's a prototype of the loaded dice from octopussy that's my theory i think uh, i think jeffrey wright's just there at the other end what hemorrhaging chips as he as he notoriously says in casino <laughs> Yeah, just, just going back to Shady Tree, I, I think that, you know, here is a character that would not be allowed nowadays. You know, it's, it's you know, it's the likes of Bernard Manning in the UK or, you know, or Roy Chubby Brown. It's, it's that level of, you know, of crass, offensive humour. But to a 70s audience, you know, that is perfectly acceptable. You know, it's perfectly popular and, you know, it would have been culturally appropriate at that time. But obviously to a modern audience now, you look back and you think, what the hell were they thinking of? But, you know, it all suits the mood. It's very of a time and it, it kind of suits the style of the film as well, I think. I do love Leonard Barth, just the look of him playing Shady Tree, because he does look like he, he is just also one of the anthill mob as well. Like if you just put him in a slightly different costume and in the background, he could do both roles and you'd never tell. Of course, one of the anthill mob returns, don't they, for the uh, the man with the golden gun. Maybe Shady Tree should have just gone to Scaramanga's Island and provided some entertainment. Oh, he's just on every Friday anyway. Nick Nat brings him in to do a special show. Trying to find Willard White is like trying to find a virgin in a maternity ward. <laughs> we move now to the main feature of the episode. It's for your ears only, the interview segment. And this week, we had the pleasure of inviting Jack Benyon into the cubbyhole. Jack is an experienced motorsport journalist. He's American editor for The Race. And of course, he's a fellow Bond fan. We spoke to him from his holiday home in Cornwall. So without further ado, let's hear what he had to say. 
did your love of cars or your love of Bond come first or did one always sort of come alongside the other? It was cars first for me. My family has always been involved in cars in some way, shape or form, mostly through my granddad who worked for Ford for a very long period of time. And yeah, that was great because we had the the RAC rally, which is one of the biggest motorsporting events that Great Britain kind of holds, um, especially back in the 60s when rallying was one of the, the biggest sports really in, in, in the country. So we used to have the, the rally based in Chester and my granddad was the foreman of the garage there. But yeah, that's where the kind of love of, of cars started and, and that kind of put me on a path to, to motorsport wanting to, to compete. So I went karting initially, but if anyone listening to the podcast has ever been karting, you'll know how expensive it is and how difficult it is to actually get into motorsport. So that wasn't something that was an option for, for me and my family. So I, I quickly learned that writing was going to be the way forward. But the, the love of Bond is, is almost equal, maybe not quite as much because I, uh, I have to write about cars on a daily basis so the the love of cars has to come first otherwise my my job would be quite boring but yeah one of my favorite treats on a weekend was for for my mum to buy me a vhs of james bond so we'd go down to the market and pay 99p for a vhs but i was quite young at this point and didn't really understand or feel like i should do it in order so we just kind of picked up random videos but anyone who had any of the vhs's in the kind of mid to late 90s will know that there was a, an intro sequence which showed some of the biggest kind of explosions and some of the biggest car chases and i saw the aston martin v8 vantage being launched off the ramp in austria and could not work out which film it came from so every Saturday we'd go down to the market and pay uh, pay 99p for VHS and I'd like run home and be really excited that this was going to be the film that had the, the Aston Martin V8 Vantage in and it never did. And I think it took me about 13 videos to, to get there in the end. But that's where my love of Bond started. But I just find that there's so much variation that you can wake up in the morning and whatever mood you're in, you can find a Bond that, that appeals to you and is one that you, you're interested in. And in the same way, you'll find one that has a car chase that appeals to you, whether it's uh, you know something completely extraordinary, like a car diving into the sea, or whether it's something you know a lot more normal, like a 2CV you know, rolling down a, a mountainside in, in Greece, you know, every Bond film has that element of, you know, either it's, you know, totally wacky or it can be a bit more realistic. And the, the car chases kind of reflect that to a certain extent. That's good. And of course, Jack, you've, um, you're now kind of a motorsport journalist as well. Um, what are the kind of career highlights you've had so far? Have you met a lot of different drivers throughout the, the years that you've been working as a journalist? Have you had any sort of major career highlights? Yeah, so I was lucky enough to work for the oldest motorsport magazine in, in the UK, a, a weekly magazine called Autosport. And that's kind of where I cut my teeth and worked my way up there. So that was a, a brilliant experience to, to work for a magazine that you've read since you were you know, a child. To me, that's almost more important than any people that I've met or, or anything like that. But, you know, just being able to see your name, you know, it never gets old seeing your byline on, a, on an article or a feature that you're proud of and that, you know, you've put a lot of hard work into and have, have done a good job of. That doesn't always happen, but I, I try my best. But yeah, um, I, I guess obviously the, the obvious one is Lewis Hamilton. We did a film and shoot with him at, at Mercedes at Brooklands um, a couple of years ago now. I've played football with Max Verstappen, who's currently leading the F1 World Championship. So that was... Uh, that was an entertaining day. Yeah, it's been a it's been a varied journey, and I'm I'm covering IndyCar now, so that's um, basically America's version of Formula One. But we also cover various other American motorsports for the for the website that I work for, which is called The Race. And I found myself on a on a Zoom call with Pitbull earlier this year, so that was probably the most surreal moment of my career so far. If you're looking for a big name, but also someone who's just you'd never ever think you might actually talk to, that was definitely the, the biggest one, I would say. <laughs> 
have to say, knowing the general demographics of our podcast, I don't know how many of them will know Pitbull, but it'll be, it'll be interesting to find out. Uh, and you teased us a little bit before the chat about uh, a lot of the travelling that you did in that job. What are the sort of great locations that you've sort of found yourself at? And uh, have you managed to take in any Bond locations on the way? Well, Macau is one of my favourite places that I've that I've been to. So that was a great opportunity to go to the event there. They have a massive race there every year for, for Formula 3 cars. And they basically close the city off and the, the government there puts so much money into promoting the event. And you know, I've been lucky enough to be part of the sort of group of journalists invited over there to kind of take that in and experience what the event's all about. And the, the people were there were, were absolutely fantastic. And the place is such a real kind of eclectic mix of, of buildings and, and culture and food. It's just it's a such a, a fantastic place but that'd be that'd definitely be the um the, the best location that i've been to i think in terms of bond location it's quite difficult to when, when you're traveling to motorsport events it's so often that you fly out and then you go straight to the track and then you come from the track to the hotel and then the hotel to the track and then the track to the hotel but you do kind of get to venture out every now and again but i do have a i do have a long list of um of places that i want to go and to be honest i think jamaica to go to to golden i might be might be top of my list just as a kind of feels like a bit of a you know an origin place for bond and somewhere that maybe isn't necessarily impactful in the sense of the the movie franchise so much but just a place where you know because i've read all the bond books and and really enjoyed fleming's over descriptive kind of style which is you know can be quite great for some people i think and it does get me sometimes but it feels like it's from a different era and just so enjoyable. And I just think to go to GoldenEye would just be a, a fantastic experience for any Bond fan to go back to that kind of place. Yeah, I totally go along with that. I'm glad you've given me a good opportunity to slide in Brosnan. GoldenEye. Yes, GoldenEye. Um, so uh, I guess <laughs> going, back to the, uh, going back to the cars, um, what do you think is the importance of the cars to the, uh, the Bond films? Why do you think that they played such a key part in the, the series formula? I think Bond's just become a culture, hasn't it? And the, the cars are, are often reflective of that. Sometimes they're not like the 2CV, which is obviously, if it hadn't been in a film, you would never connect James Bond with a 2CV because Bond is luxury, it's excitement, it's it's speed, it's action, it's it's all of those things and all of the things that a Citroen 2CV is not. So you, you definitely wouldn't make those connections. But coming from Moonraker, where everything was so outlandish and crazy and you know we've got laser guns shooting in space and, and things like that, how good a casting is the 2CV? Because, I, you know, I, I don't like the 2CV, even though I'm talking about it. It's not a car that I enjoy or really want to own or anything like that. But if you're trying to bring a film back down to earth and give it this kind of autumn vibe that you discussed on, on the episode, what better way to do that than with something like a Citroen 2CV? It's a great way to kind of create that lineage that the films do. I think the cars play a big role in that and uh, can be massively impactful in that sense. And they're always so well choreographed and well thought out and, it's incredible what the what the franchise is able to do. I know being able to, you know, been lucky enough to work with Mark Higgins for for quite a long time in my previous profession as in a, a newspaper called Motorsport News. Mark Higgins, British Rally Champion, you know, from the Isle of Man, really, really cool guy, really, really good person to talk to and a really friendly person. You should definitely go and seek him out on YouTube if you're not sure who he is, because you'll see his car going sideways permanently and it's really entertaining. But he's been with the franchise since Die Another Day. And just hearing some of the stories about, you know, what he's able to, to reflect on and, and some of the enjoyment that he's had. And this is a person who's competed in one of the most dangerous sports, uh, you know, an international level and still, you know, doing the stunts of the Bond franchise is something that means so much to him. It's, it's just part of the, the spectacular nature of Bond, isn't it? So big question. Um, what for you is kind of the standout car chase of the Bond series? And what is it about it that makes it so special, would you say? 
my favorite personally if that's if that's the kind of vibe we're going for would be the the, the living daylights or the aston martin just because of the connection to my childhood and how much i kind of enjoyed that there's just so many parts of that car chase that i love i love the original dbs that was in on Her majesty's and we'll, we'll talk about that later i'm sure but the the gadgets you know it felt like they were all kind of believable to a certain extent but also crazy at the same time which is a, a real difficult line to tread so yeah i think that i think that chase on the snow there's just something about a car chase on snow that is just you know absolutely incredible the cars are always sideways and look spectacular everything up to the cello throw i think uh, i just absolutely love it and I, I love it even more that dalton actually threw the cello which is just one of my favorite pieces of bond trivia is that he actually did that which is you know absolutely fantastic but i don't think there was anything particularly difficult to arrange on that set in terms of you know how the chase was executed there was no you know nothing out of the ordinary used to kind of make that happen it was just a well-engineered well-designed well-thought-out chase that involved blowing things up it involved cutting the ice to sink a car which is just <laughs> seems absolutely bizarre you had the outrigger for when he had a puncture it's just you know it feels like the outrigger was designed for him to, to for that to happen and yeah just everything about that chase is just the right amount of outlandish but the right amount of realistic for me and i, I just really enjoy it but having said all of that do you think there's any any moments of the bond franchise where they've maybe had a misguided view of cars the one for me is the man with the golden gun and the the noise after the corkscrew jump that is just you know that is a i don't think people watching a bond film even before that kind of whoop is added in even before that will appreciate how difficult that stunt was to do and how groundbreaking and difficult to do that was not just not just a stunt but on the set and to make all of that work and to do it in one take some of the first instances of, of CAD design being used with, with cars to make that work, to try and design the car in a way that would make it rotate properly. And the balance that they had to do with making sure that the car was going to flip in the correct way and wasn't going to fall into the river or something. And all of it, arguably, in my opinion, one of the, one of the best car sort of stunts done in a film, completely ruined by a stupid noise that just makes it look totally unbelievable and I imagine quite a lot of kind of general fans who've watched The Man with the Golden Gun who aren't necessarily you know massive Bond fans have watched that and gone well that's been done with a model or completely misunderstood the intricacy of that stunt because of the noise added after it. it's such a small thing and I feel so sorry to be slating it because it's you know it's, it is such a small thing but it, it just for me just totally kills the seriousness of how difficult that jump was and I just think that was such a great era of Bond doing so many great stunts kind of similar time the speedboat in, in live and let die groundbreaking and record-breaking stunts that even now you would struggle to kind of replicate in a similar way with the same machinery and so for me that is the biggest car faux part of the whole bond franchise in my opinion and are there any sort of cars that have been kind of in the bond series over the years that you think were maybe a mistake that maybe bond shouldn't have driven or maybe that he should have driven that are, are there that you know maybe the producers missed an opportunity um i'm always brought back to the BMW Z3 and GoldenEye, I always think it should have been the Aston DB7, but do you think it's it's something that they usually get it right or do you think that it's it can sometimes be a bit hit and miss? I, I agree with you about the Z3, pretty poor choice of casting and it was just poorly used in the film as well. They could have made that car work if they'd have done something with it, but obviously Jack Wade is the sole protagonist of, of that car in the film so that's very disappointing i don't think there's any that are shockingly wrong in my opinion i think the e-type is always one i always fall back to and think that could have been a brilliant bond car but the bond franchise obviously took a kind of aston martin trajectory which i totally agree with and, and love the cars 
But I, I think the the E-Type was really the best British car of the 60s. And I think in a, a different parallel universe, the, the E-Type could have been, you know, the perfect Bond car. It was such a, a big symbol of, of Britain in the 60s and, and such an example of its engineering prowess and its ability to, to create fantastic cars before the 70s when we had a, a pile of rubbish, literally. You know, the, the E-Type would have been a, a fantastic, you know, a fantastic option to have. But like I said, even that I don't think is a faux pas because the Aston Martin trajectory that it went on was was the correct one and one that worked really well and one that has, you know, in a certain way taken inspiration from the books, but also, you know, used the the cars that are out there in a in a really nice way. And I think the I think the deal they did with with Aston Martin was right. And taking the cars sort of out of the context of gadgets and bond and looking at them in terms of pure performance and kind of car quality. Um, if you could just pick one of them to own or sort of drive for the day, which one would you go for? For me, it's it's kind of a bad choice from a daily driver perspective. But the the Esprit, the Lotus Esprit from Spy Love Me, is just it's one of the cars that is just so rare that it kind of adds to the kind of interest around it for me and the intrigue around that car. I think Lotus was well. We'll we'll talk about the the car later in the episode. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So we won't go into too much detail. But I think the rarity of that car and obviously what it goes on to do. I think I was one of those people that saw Spy Love Me a lot on TV and, and really fell in love with, you know, Wet Nelly and that that whole sequence of the car going into the water and then subsequently seeing it as a submarine is is it's just bizarre. And obviously, you know, Elon Musk likes it, so that, if it's good enough for him, it's got to be good enough for me. I was going to say, I wonder what the resale value is. I think he did he buy it for about a million dollars. I think it's crazy, and to think that the original sort of designed submarine was uh, auctioned off it as part of a storage unit in America for a hundred dollars. So Elon Musk could have had could have had himself a nice uh, a nice bargain there, but he would have had the submarine version as opposed to the the drivable version, which I don't think Elon would would like. I think he likes to I think he would like to drive it around and be seen in it. And Jack, how much do you think that kind of modern action films owe to the Bond franchise in terms of stunt work? You know, there's there's quite an interesting blend of sort of suspense and humour that we've mentioned in a lot of the Bond films. Do you think that a lot of modern action cinema relies on on what the Bond films kind of did to push the envelope? Yeah, absolutely. That's quite a, an easy to answer question. Yes. <laughs> Obviously, the, the the Bond franchise is always evolving and has not always been the kind of number one action, you know, epic that, that comes out every year. That's not always been the case. And I think the, the Bond franchise is a fantastic example of that and, and something, you know, you guys have discussed in, in detail before. But just the the way that the Bond series kind of stripped everything back and, and made it really kind of raw and aggressive and you just don't know what's coming around the corner. There's always a sense of surprise that someone's going to fly in through a window and attempt to kill him. So yeah, just a, a different kind of way of doing action films. And I think the the car chase in the first book, the Bourne film with the, the Red Mini, if anyone's not seen that, then definitely recommend going to see that. But basically all of the car chases in the Bourne film are really kind of frantic and aggressive. And I think maybe Spectre kind of goes along similar lines. I think you can get into, you can get yourself down a bit of a rabbit warren of comparing the way films have done things, harking back to a previous film and thinking that they've copied that in actual fact they haven't. It's, there's absolutely no connection whatsoever, but... I think the Bourne franchise in, in more than just the cars obviously set the Bond franchise on a, on a different kind of trajectory and a, a kind of almost reactionary trajectory to, to that. And just a sort of um, wider question about the Bond series. Um, what for you are the favourite films and the favourite Bond actors and what for you elevates them above the others, would you say? Well, Roger Moore is my favourite Bond. I love his raised eyebrow style because I am a big fan of The Saint 
So I just kind of love his style. You know, he used to create his own wardrobes and that's probably a, a bit of a faux pas in some cases, thinking back to some of the safari suits and things like that. But yeah, I think he just summarized his era so perfectly, I think, Roger Moore. And it, it, you felt like that on screen. You just felt like even when the, the writers didn't know how to write for him yet, he still delivered really entertaining performances. And a worst case scenario is his kind of escape mechanism with the eyebrow or a little quip or, you know, something just to get him out of it. But I think for me, it's an interesting question because I know people say it's difficult to pick a favorite Bond film and it, and it is obviously, but mine kind of change with the times and kind of going back to watch some of them because I find some of them really cringeworthy and really difficult to watch now. Even some of the naming of some of the characters, you know, borderline offensive if you were, you know, you would never do it now. So you kind of have to have a kind of sliding scale, don't you? Of, you know, what you find acceptable and you have to kind of accept that the films were of their time and very reflective of the, the people and the society that they were kind of in at the time. They didn't always get that right. You know, some of the films, you know, like Diamonds Are Forever, that's, that's a difficult one to go back and watch now for sure. So yeah, it does, it does kind of move with the times. And I think every time I watch one, I have a new appreciation for something that I've missed or something that just makes the films a bit more enjoyable to watch. I think Honor Majesties is a perfect example for anyone who's my age, basically, or a, or a little bit older, who probably wrote that off when they first watched it when they were younger. But when they're old enough to appreciate cinema and you know appreciate how good that film really is, that it kind of jumps up the leaderboard and becomes one of, instantly one of your favourites. I think the only controversial one I would have is that From Russia With Love is never top of my list or or really one of my particular favorites and i can't really explain why it's not but i think it's a similar problem to you guys had when you were trying to rank all the films there was a good five or six films that you could have had a lot higher up and it's not because you hated them or because you disliked any of them it was just literally just a placement thing where you think one film's just slightly better than the other one and i appreciate that film is incredible but it's just not one that really kind of breaches the the top of the list for me Okay, I'll let you off, Jake, even though that is my, my favourite film. Um, we are, we're we about to talk about the 007 best cars, but uh, are there any that didn't quite make our list that you feel uh, perhaps underappreciated? I think the DB10 was a big one for me, um, just because it's such a big step in the sense that it was the first car specifically designed for Bond. And it just shows the the real world impact that Bond has now and, and where it's standing is in, in sort of cinema and just in, in culture itself that they designed a car specifically for it, where, you know, you kind of follow the lineage of Bond and you go back to the, the early films and, you know, they had to fight to get them in. And, and now we've got people queuing up to design a standalone specific car just for Bond, which I think just reflects how far the, the franchise has come and how important it is. So that's, that's, that's another one that could have made the list for that reason. And then a lot of people's favorite, the Toyota 2000 GT, I think is a, a big one, kind of reflected post-war Japan and it's kind of pre-emergence, I guess you would call it. We're starting to take influence from, from the Western world more, but also was obviously on the verge of its kind of technological revolution that it, that it would kind of kickstart, you know, fairly shortly afterwards. So the, the Toyota 2000 GT is quite a good example of that. It's very European looking and it's styling and, and things like that. And I, I think it's quite reflective of Japan at the time, but um Obviously, there's a famous story they had to cut the roof off for, to, to get Connery in, which is, which is just another kind of lovely Bond car trivia fact. So, so that's another a good thing to enjoy about that car. I think they're the ones that I, I thought really, you know, could or should have made the list, but, but didn't. But I think all of the cars that we're about to discuss on the list, are, you know, have their, their worthy place.
So next up is the 007 best segment in which we rank the seven best in a selected Bond category. And this week, it's quite a big one. We teased you in series two with a rundown of specifically non-car vehicles. But with Jack along for the ride, what better time than to choose our 007 best cars of the Bond franchise? So a plethora of options to choose from. What did we go for? Let's find out, starting with number seven. Yes, and in at number seven, it's the Mercury Cougar XR7 from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Um, the star, in a sense, of the forgotten car chase of the series, sandwiched as it is between these two incredible ski action sequences, Bond escaping from Viz Gloria, and then, of course, Tracy getting kidnapped in the avalanche later. And the film has really slow burned to these big action sequences with just fistfights throughout much of the early film. And then it really hits you over the head with the kind of smash and crash nature of the stock car rally as well. It's a real showcase for Peter Hunt's uh, direction and editing, uh, but a fantastically stylish and kind of outstanding car to put into that race as well. Yeah, absolutely, Adam. I think it's one of those, it's almost one of those forgotten Bond cars as well, because obviously we, we reflect so much on, on the cars that Bond drives, but this is a real focus on Tracy and the fact that she's got quite an interesting, you know, it's, it's not what you'd expect in many respects because it's rear-wheel drive, it's got a lot of power, so it's it's able to do those quite spectacular slides on the ice and, and you know, that adds to the spectacle. It's not one of my favourites. I think... I'm too maybe too serious about this car, but I just think it's such a stupid car to have in the Alps. Like it's got a massive V8 that is just going to guzzle through petrol. Can't imagine as many petrol stations up there, so it doesn't feel like a very sensible choice of car to take up there. And I think you know I take your point about the the sliding on the ice, but I think when you've got ice, you can basically slide any car with a reason. So I think she could have gone for a much more sensible choice of car there, really. But yeah, a lot of it was done on a flooded football field, which kept melting, which really held back the productions to a, quite a large extent because, you know, in the day, the frozen football field just kind of melted and it was making it really difficult to get the shots and, and to make all that work. So that was really difficult. And then the only thing, the only other thing I'd probably add is that apparently Lazenby rolled a car in the uh, production of this sequence, which I'm not sure if that's true. Maybe we need to get that fact checked because obviously he's not doing any of the driving in the sequence. So it seems odd that he would roll a car because he's not actually doing any of the, any of the driving, I suppose. But yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one. Well, maybe that's why Diana rigged us all the driving. It was originally meant to be Lazenby, and then he rolled one car over, and they thought, oh, no, we can't be having this. Let's let's give it Diana. She goes <laughs> like the clappers. Number six. And in at number six is the Ford Mustang Mech 1 from Diamonds Are Forever. Actually, this is the third Ford Mustang of the series after the blue convertible driven by Fiona Volpe in Thunderball and the, the white convertible driven by Tilly Masterson in Goldfinger. But it's this red version driven by Tiffany Case that makes it onto the list. The 1971 version of the car, so it was brand new at the time of filming. It feels very much at home, doesn't it, against the, the bright neon lights of Fremont Street in Las Vegas. Perhaps I'm not too keen on the actual car chase. I think it's a little bit lackluster, certainly compared to some of the other Bond car chases. Uh, but there's no denying that this car looks great. And the fact that it's so bulky and cumbersome as well, it makes the alleyway stunt even more impressive as it kind of glides along on the two wheels. Um, and interestingly, for the 50th anniversary of Bond, the company Toy State released a model of this car replete with sound effects and a touchscreen remote control. Uh, so you might want to add that to your collection phil this one i've always i've never really been a massive fan of the mac one simply because the fact it felt a bit softer and it felt a bit almost middle-aged in terms of it was getting a lot heavier around the arches and it, it didn't really suit the the image of what the mustang should be you know this sort of hard charging powerful muscle car you know it was almost becoming a facsimile of itself so 
yes, it, the Mustang kind of suited the Vegas atmosphere in that style, but I think they could have maybe done a little bit more with it as well. I think it's it's not for me. I think it's deserving of being in the list, but it's it doesn't deserve to be higher than this. I don't think I'd have one have this one in the list uh, just because I think there's some really good cars that that missed out that we discussed earlier. But interesting, a lot of the original kind of stunt work was done by a group called Tournament of Thrills that don't often get the the kind of credit for their involvement in in that whole kind of uh, sequence. So so much of it just suits the film. I think it's big, it's brash, it's powerful. The fact that they think they can cruise into Las Vegas and not be seen in a bright red Mac One Mustang is bizarre and totally in fitting with the film. It's very all of it is very fitting, I think, for the for the film. Even though some of it's wrong and some of it's you know could have been could have been done better. And I think that it's disappointing because when you've got someone like Remy Julian, you really need to you know present a, a great product because you've you've got all the the elements that you need to make a, a brilliant stunt and they've just not really delivered with this one. I think there's definitely a gulf emerging in this list, isn't there, between the, the petrol heads and then me and mine probably who are sort of appreciating the fun side of it. Uh, I find it hilarious that there was another version of this where even more people are watching it because one of the things I find so funny about this scene is just how many people are lined up on the street just gawping at it, not even trying to be extras queuing outside the casino. They just stood there watching the chase which I guess they kind of then use and think, well, it is natural if all this is going on, people will just stop and stare at it. I almost think in um, You Only Live Twice, uh, when uh, Tiger Tanaka magnet airlifts a car over the city of Tokyo, there was a bit of a missed opportunity to insert some stock footage from Godzilla of loads of Japanese crowds looking up terrified. Number five. Okay, and moving on to number five. So this is a bit of an unusual entry because it actually refers to two separate cars. So it's the Aston Martin DBS. First scene in Honor Majesty's Secret Service with George Lazenby, of course, as James Bond. And then later, the modern interpretation of the DBS with Daniel Craig's Bond in Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace. Brilliant car in both sequences. The newer DBS having a few more gadgets to help Bond, obviously, when he's fighting for his life at the casino. Um, and, of, of course, one of the greatest stunts in the Bond franchise in Casino Royale when it's launched over Vespa Linden and barrel roll several times. I believe that was was a world record at the time you know i think that is the best car stunt of the whole franchise in in my opinion just because of the difficulty and the impact that it has and i think the car itself is not particularly impactful in the sense that you know it's not loaded with gadgets but that stunt is you know it does make you gasp the stunt driver adam curley had been practicing with bmw 5 series and then also tried it with a white db9 but the kind of more lightweight dbs had a different center of gravity so when they came to actually roll it as you mentioned on the episode of Casino Royale, they had to use a, an air cannon to get it to roll over because it was just so, its center of gravity is so low and it's just so well balanced that when they originally tried it, it just landed on four wheels. So it was quite a difficult stunt to execute. It's a gorgeous car, the Daniel Craig DBS, which is completely masochistically battered across both films, isn't it? But for the beginning of Quantum, they give him a whole new one and before two minutes are up, he's absolutely smashed it. Although it seems to be the best protected car ever because Bond survives that crash in it and Mr. White seems perfectly fine in the car boot even after all the bullet holes and the smash and crash and via quantum opening car chase as well. Maybe he's, he's doing a merry good night, isn't he? He's on the phone to his superiors of Spectre saying, I'm stuck in a boot. So in at number four, we have the Aston Martin V8 Vantage, famous for the big jump with the jet propelled number plate on the back, less famous for its cello carrying capabilities, I guess. It's one that means a lot to me as a, a fan of James Bond and one of the kind of links that I have to the franchise. In, interesting at this point, Victor Gauntlet had taken over Aston Martin and was 
broker in a deal with Ford to, to keep the company going in, in the kind of midst of recession. Uh, but he knew Cubby Broccoli well. So they kind of brokered the deal to have this car in the film. Actually, Bond drives a Gauntlet's car into Blade and House. So uh, yeah, his actual car was used and that's the Volante, the, the soft top, which is not the car that appears later on because the, the car that appears later on is a hard top. They had seven five glass molds made for, for the film, but only three cars used. And it was shot in a, on a, a lake in Southern Austria. And I, I just think the, the whole thing is uh, absolutely fantastic. Really enjoyable for me. But what do you guys make of this car and its position on the, on the list? Yeah, I agree totally, Jack. I love this car. This is one of my all-time favourites of the entire series. It's um, it's just such a special moment because it kind of it, it introduced Dalton to the role of Bond, and it also got Aston Martin back to the franchise. You know, this was the first Aston Martin since Honor Majesty. So, you know, we're talking um, you know eighteen years or so since we last saw Aston Martin. So it's a big moment for them, and it's a big moment for Dalton as well. And it's again, it's the first time we've seen a lot of gadgets in a car since the days of the Esprit when it was wet. Nelly um, and you know and obviously Bond uses pretty much all of them to his advantage you know he's getting attacked by um, you know rocket launchers and machine guns and and the car is there to keep him safe it's it's doing its job perfectly again it's one of my all-time favorite car chases not just in the Bond franchise but in in cinema and it's it's one of my all-time favorite cars it's interesting that Dalton gets this chase because when we talked to John Grover, the editor, he talked about the script was written, The Living Daylights, with Roger Moore in mind, and then just went through a bit of a last minute rewrite, presumably to take out all the really silly jokes that Dalton was just going to frown and, and get pretty disgusted at. But he anticipates Brosnan, in a sense, as well as anticipating how Daniel Craig would play the role in bringing sort of a seriousness, but a playfulness to how he handles these big gadgety action sequences, Dalton. Uh, I love Marion Diabo in this scene as well. She's the first civilian to be riding shotgun in a big Bond gadget car, I think since Tilly Masterson in Goldfinger, everyone else has been a fellow agent. And, you know, Tilly Masterson just kind of found the whole thing a bit bemusing. Mariam Diabo is terrified. She just wants to get off the ride as soon as possible. Number three. And making it into the top three is the BMW 750iL from Tomorrow Never Dies. Well, we've spoken many times about our love for this car, not least in our Series 2 episode with Jim Dowdle. So do go back and listen to that one if you haven't. Uh, so it's unsurprising. It makes our top three. And uh, after the underwhelming appearance of the Z3 in GoldenEye, Tomorrow Never Dies really delivers on this car, doesn't it? It packs a punch. The, the V12 engine and all of the gadgets necessary for Bond to complete his getaway. I think the overall presentation is just phenomenal, really. It showcases Brosnan's playful side. It gives us some heartwarming moments with Desmond Llewellyn's cue as well. Uh, and part of its appeal, I think, is that it's a bit more affordable than some of the other supercars of Bond. So it's realistic that this is a, a Bond car that you can actually own and drive yourself. Uh, and of course, in the film, it gets one of the best farewells flying majestically into the Avis storefront with uh, with no injuries to the members of public. <laughs> I think I've had a three a 360 degree interpretation of this car because when it first kind of came out, Tomorrow Never Dies is one of my favourite films and I love the car chase, but really didn't like the fact that Bond was kind of driving around in a four-door saloon. But since then, I've kind of come into a, a kind of different way of thinking about it and it's obviously a car that a secret agent would drive. So in many ways, it's one of those aspects of realism that kind of pop up every now and again in, in the franchise that you kind of enjoy and need. I mean, I don't think the car was affordable at the time, but it was, I appreciate what you mean in, in the sense that it's not a supercar and it's not one that is, you know, going to be totally out of everyone's budget range. It's much more down to earth. And I think that fits in with the film really nicely, the plot of the film. And, you know, we're getting a kind of topic of the media manipulating 
you know, world events and, and stuff like that feels quite, I mean, obviously it feels more prescient for us now, but even back then it would have felt like, you know, people have always hated the media, haven't they? So it's, a, you know, even then it would have, it would have resonated with the people watching the film. It is very good cover, isn't it? Because it does look like the sort of car that a Hamburg businessman would be driving around the place. Uh, and possibly there's a bit of Q getting fed up of having to cram all of these gadgets into these tiny sort of sports cars with a very big engine. So he's not got very much space in them. So clearly thought, oh, I'll give myself something bigger to work with. I've got to pack loads into this. This will just make it a lot easier. Yeah, no, I know that sort of BMW was kind of a divisive choice for the franchise, but I think that this is where, you know, Brosnan gets to make the most of, of having a gadget-laden car, and it's it has so many great aspects to, you know, the weaponry and the, you know, the defence systems that are there, you know, the smoke screen and the, the slightly ridiculous kind of bulletproof glass that seems to, you know, when they're hitting it with, the you know, hammers, it just sort of bounces off. But no, again, it's, it's one of those great sequences that we all remember, and, you know, I think it's a worthy third place entry for the list i think if um if ian fleming is turning his grave at the fact that a german car is being driven by a bond then he'll be doubly upset that they chose the brent cross shopping center north of the m25 to, to to film i'm sure he would have been very displeased with that but yeah the other thing about that is it's it's set at the atlantic kempinski in in hamburg the top floor is called the specter chamber which is quite a nice little Bond trivia crossover thing, which is it's nothing to do with Bond. It's not named after Bond or anything, but that's just quite an interesting kind of crossover fact. Number two. Okay, so moving on to number two, and it's possibly not a big surprise for what we have at this entry. It is, of course, the Lotus Esprit S1 from The Spy Who Loved Me. This was the car that really gave Roger Moore his his first taste of real um, gadget-laden Bond cars seen leaping into the sea as the submarine after it's attacked by Naomi in the helicopter and it saves Bond and Agent Triple X from impending doom. It's, it's one of the most fondly remembered cars and it, it really boosted Lotus's kind of image with a new audience as well. Yeah, obviously this one um, is a, a big one for anyone with uh, any sort of motorsport lineage or, or is a motorsport fan. Colin Chapman was the, the founder of Lotus and you can trace back pretty much every major development in modern Formula One all the way back to his uh, his motto, simplify and add lightness. So it was smaller but faster for, for him and the Esprit is definitely uh, a bit of a pocket rocket, a brilliant, really, really cool car for the franchise. He was designed by Jajaro, who was very well known in the car industry for designing some of the most famous cars. And I also find it really cool that they, they used the second Esprit for filming. So they took the rear window out of the back of the first Esprit and used that to film the second one, which is, that makes some really cool pictures. And if you if you listen to the podcast and you've not seen those before, definitely recommend, you know, seeking them out and seeing the car dancing around the countryside with, you know, there's two Lotus Esprits with, uh, you know, one with a camera kind of hanging out the, and two people hanging out the back of it, which definitely wouldn't be allowed in, in current health and safety law. I think the, the use of the styling of this car is, is exceptional in the sequence as well. I mean, it has such personality. It even looks a bit like a grinning shark, doesn't it? But also the fact that it is so low and so kind of wide and the way that they use that within the chase itself on land, you know, it's sort of driving under things that are a very low height. It's sort of weaving in and out of vehicles on these mountain roads. So it's really great that they incorporate almost the look of the car into that sequence. And of course, the fact that Roger Moore is the one to get the aquatic car is perfect because he is the aquatic bond. I mean, he bloody loves a boat chase. He's the Gordon Tracy of Bond. I think I can add a bit of uh, balance maybe because there are some elements of this that I didn't like and some parts that maybe kind of didn't really enjoy so much. I think the the fish being uh, kind of dropped out of the car was uh, one that I didn't personally enjoy. And the other aspect is I think the, they kind of undid the, the quality of the chase a little bit with some of the fast forwarding. 
I know it's of the time and I know it's, you know, it's not something I'm going to hold them seriously accountable for because it's just so of its time. But when you go back and watch it again, it does appear a bit dated when you see the, the kind of Jaws's Ford Granada sort of being quite blatantly fast forwarded times two, and it just doesn't look very realistic. But it's a testament to the chase that we've got this car so high and, and the chase is so well liked. There were so many good things happening there that the, 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 the kind of small bad bits were just kind of brushed by the wayside and, and are not particularly prevalent. Whereas you know, there's bits of that that could have threatened to kind of undermine the quality of that whole sequence, but didn't actually do so, luckily. The moments of comedy, I think, uh, are not too bad. I think the car is so mesmerizing in itself in the chase that you're kind of not really distracted too much by the fish at the end, by, I mean, if I remember at the beginning of the chase, Jaws drives into the top of the house, doesn't he? And, uh, and walks out, brushes his uh, blazer uh, perfectly fine. So yeah, I think those comedy moments are, are generally okay. I think I can, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but uh, yeah, I think the chase overall is, is still superb. Yeah, I, I love that Jaws bit. It's, and, and it's why Spy Love Me is for us the great Roger Moore film, because it's the one that gets that balance between the action's genuinely really good, but then the comedy's also really well judged as well. Like It just gets that better than all the rest. This is presumably part of Q's kind of range of extreme off-road vehicles, isn't it, as well? Because he sort of says in Man, The Man with the Golden Gun, he's working on a flying car to rival Scaramanga. Presumably there's another one, which is an underground car, which has a big drill on the front, which is able to sort of tunnel into things. That's Kananga's car. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. That's the one Whisper gets stuck That's... in at the end, isn't it? That's how he built the monorail, with a giant drill <laughs> on the front of the car. Whisper built it with his own drill car. Number one. And in at number one, it's the Aston Martin Vanish from Dino... No, it isn't. It's the Aston Martin DB5. Um, of course, it's the, um, it is the great Bond car. It obviously dates back originally to Goldfinger. And it's interesting the chasing Goldfinger, isn't it? In that they clearly had much more confidence with it at this point, looking beautiful driving through the Swiss Alps, than they did with the actual gadget side of it. Because it all takes place at night and it sort of weirdly obscures a lot of what the gadgets in the car are doing. Uh, and this is a, something that they learn from. Every other big gadget chase happens in broad daylight because they almost learned from this Aston chase that it, it can be done and that it looks spectacular. Even when the actual ejector seat stunt is kind of more funny than, than spectacular. I mean, the ejector seat used in Dine of the Day is better than the one in Goldfinger. I'll, I'll stand by that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, Phil and Jack, you're going to wax lyrical on this. It is the ultimate Bond car, isn't it? Just no question. Absolutely. You're right to kind of point out the, the things you mentioned with the darkness there. I think they just probably didn't have the quality of camera and the quality of film to, to quite pull that off probably the way they wanted to do it. And if you reshot that now with the you know the kind of technology that we have now, I'm sure you'd be able to, to make that work. And it, it's a great choice for the car. Obviously, Bond drove a DB Mark III in the, in the Goldfinger book. So it was, it was a natural choice in that sense. The car had also won at Le Mans in, in 59 and had a strong kind of motorsport heritage, which is something that Fleming kind of generally refers back to in the books quite often it's an interesting car as part of that era because we you know we quite comfortably refer back to the swinging 60s but they're not really you know not really swinging at this point quite yet it's, you know it's not really taken off and Aston Martin had a very kind of stodgy reputation at this point very connected to to old people even though they had this motorsport pedigree it was it was a car that, that kind of older older gentlemen would drive so it was the perfect car to kind of launch them into this new era of beauty and culture that, that, that we were about to see and I think the reason it's continually used again in some of the newer Bond films is not just for the fact that it links back to, to older Bond but just because it's a timeless car just the way it looks it, you know you can tell it's a classic car but it never really feels out of place when you see it currently 
Yeah, absolutely, Jack. I think it's it's kind of one of the, well, it is the icon of not just the Connery era, but it kind of set up Aston Martin as the car of James Bond. So, you know, everybody now pretty much that buys an Aston Martin, you know, you, you buy an Aston Martin because you kind of want to live out that fantasy of being James Bond. So, you know, you want to wear a tuxedo and go to a dinner party. It's that boyhood dream again. You know, most of us won't be able to get the opportunity to wear an Aston Martin, but it's nice to dream. It's nice to dream that we might be a, an international spy and it's it just feeds into that whole you know image of what James Bond should be you know and just how wonderful it can be I think it's starting to get a bit overused if anything it, it kind of it had a, it was relevant in Skyfall and to an extent it was relevant in GoldenEye I don't really think it was needed at the start of Tomorrow Never Dies and I've, I'm not really sure what they're going to use it for in you know No Time to Die I know they'll try and put a bit more action behind it but I think that Maybe it's time to retire the DB5. I think the the real reason, Phil, that you don't like the DB5 at the start of Golden Eyes because you want all of the attention to be on Eric Serra's brilliant soundtrack and that the DB5 takes away from that. So we move to our next segment, which is the James Bond Film Club, and we come to the end of the Indiana Jones trilogy. So a whole host of Bond alumni in this last instalment, at least one of whom I'm sure Phil will have been pleased to see. But over to Adam to tell us more. Yep, so we are concluding our look at the Indiana Jones trilogy with, of course, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, the last of the Indiana Jones films. Uh, so this was made in 1989, five years after Temple of Doom, directed, of course, by Steven Spielberg from a script by George Lucas and Jeffrey Bohm. Harrison Ford returns alongside Denham Elliott and newcomer River Phoenix as young Indy with a plethora of Bond alumni. John Reese davies of course, is back as Sulla. Julian Glover, Ari Kristatos is there as Walter Donovan. The man himself, Sean Connery, as Henry Jones Sr. And, of course, Phil's favourite, Alison Doody as Elsa. And so the plot of this one, very briefly, Indy's father has gone missing in a search for the Holy Grail. Yes, the actual one, Monty Python apparently didn't find it. Uh, And Indy hooks up with Henry's uh, assistant Elsa in Venice. They trace him to a Nazi castle in Austria where they find Indiana Jones Sr. captured. But of course, it's revealed that Elsa and Donovan are both working for the Nazis. They're back and they're after the Grail. And so father and son escape. They race the Nazis to find the Grail. But the heart of the film is that reconnection of two men, father and son, who'd always been very distant from one another throughout their life. Uh, So it's a contrast to Temple, this one. It's a return to the light touch of Raiders. We bring back a lot of known characters and, of course, the Nazi villains rather than the sort of strange supernatural thuggy cult. Uh, But it goes even further into the slapstick and the wisecracks. I mean, that central double act is the funniest in the film series by far, isn't it? Just the way that Ford and Connery play off of each other is mesmerising. Connery versus the birds on the beach and sort of shooting his own plane down. And that weird love triangle where they both, it turns out, slept with Elsa are just fantastic comedy moments. The biggest laugh in the film is Harrison Ford throwing a guy off a blimp, turning to the outraged customers and just saying, no ticket. Uh, But of course, it's still dramatic and it's uh, action packed. Uh, You know, the opening and the ending, again, are magnificent. But the emotional stakes are really high in this film as well. There's a lot of heart to it. And it comes completely from that Ford and Connery double act. They clearly have huge respect for each other. They're having a lot of fun, but within extremely layered and complex characters. Uh, You know, Connery cast very much because he was the original Bond and therefore, in Spielberg's words, the only man who could slap Harrison Ford and get away with it. But that's me, Phil. You've finally seen the greatest film outing, the most prominent film outing 
of your beloved Alison Doody. What did you think of Alison Doody? I mean, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. To be honest, I thought this is probably the the best of all the Indiana Jones films. Also, we've we've had a bit more of a gap between the first two. And yes, as you say, obviously, I, I didn't realise just how much a role Alison Doody plays in this film. I was rather saddened that, again, she is a villain. Obviously, at the end, she's she's so desperate to grab the Holy Grail that she inevitably falls to her death. I think she was only 23 at this point in time. So, again, very young for the role she was playing. But she does it with a lot of integrity and a lot of maturity as well, I think. And it's it very much is a, a Steven Spielberg style of film and it's really enjoyable a lot of action set pieces a lot of you know incredible stunt work a lot of really good storytelling as well and of course we also get the the wonderful John Williams music as well which plays throughout the film and gives it a real sense of gravity and a warmth to it as well that you know we we kind of reflect on in the Bond films as well so I think that this is probably there's still moments that haven't aged well again you know Julian Glover's death scene where he sort of ages a thousand years in 15 seconds is is a little bit silly, but, you know, you could probably let it off. And overall, I think this is probably the best outing of the three. It's, it's a consistent thing in Connery's career that he gives his best performances when he's clearly partnered opposite someone who is also heavyweight or who he clearly respects. Obviously, Harrison Ford in this one, thinking back to with Michael Caine in The Man Who Would Be King, perhaps even to Nicolas Cage in The Rock and uh, Kevin Costner in The Untouchables. But that goes all the way back to From Russia With Love, doesn't it? And those wonderful scenes with Pedro Armendariz. So next up, we have Phil's bloopers. And he's going to take a look at Thunderball this week. The first blooper is the uh, is how long the bloody film is. But <laughs> what else have you got, Phil? Yeah, so I thought I'd uh, brush over the end sequence being so long and so ridiculous. So we did have a few comments on our Twitter pages from our followers. Uh, so Ben got in touch to say that in the pre-title sequence, when it's the uh, the funeral, we can clearly see that the widow is actually a woman in the scene. And then we're led to believe that somehow it then transitions into the, um, obviously, the assassin that Bond is sent to kill. So thanks to Ben for pointing that one out. Of course, one of the most infamous ones, as Joe pointed out on Twitter is the carnival sequence where we get the scene of the stray dog having a, a cheeky wee in, in the road. What you may also not realise is that because the Islanders were so fascinated and so excited to have the Bond crew there, they also dressed up in giant yellow 007 headwear that sticks out like a sore thumb. So if you notice the dog, you'll also notice giant 007s wandering behind it. There's also some great continuity errors. Um, we see when Bond confronts Count Lippy at the health spa, he enters a room that simply says massage on the door. And yet when he leaves, it then becomes sits, bath and heat treatments. Um, also, when Bond gets out of Largo's pool, his hair is actually perfectly dry and combed. So we're not sure what kind of wig or tupi he was wearing at that point in time, but it was clearly a self-drying one, um, which seems a bit strange. Um, one of the funnier ones, of course, is when Bond stabs the scuba diver in the climactic fight sequence underwater. Now, we clearly see that a large hole is punctured in the diver's mask. And yet in the next sequence, the mask is repaired again. There's no damage at all. It's also quite amusing that it's clearly a dummy that gets stabbed in this sequence. There's also some good old-fashioned bad dubbing as well. So when Fiona and Bond are dancing, we can clearly see that there's a brass band playing instruments, including a trumpeter in the background. If you're listening very carefully, you'll actually notice it's a string orchestra that's playing, so we're not really sure where that's coming from. 
if you're also eagle-eyed, you'll note that the band are quite hesitant to start playing until they get the cue from their offhand stage coordinator. So the band are just sort of sat there awkwardly miming without any kind of cue, and then they just start randomly playing when, when the dancers start. So another kind of continuity error. But again, so many that we could have ran through this week. Well, surely the big error in um, the Thunderball opening sequence is that the henchmen don't think to run around the side of the water jets coming from the back of the Aston Martin. They just keep running straight at them and keep falling over. Yeah, that is that is a minor inconvenience for them. You know, you'd expect them either to, you know, just wait a little bit or, you know, move backwards slightly so they're not being completely drenched and thrown off their feet. But the fact that Bond actually gets to the Aston is a miracle. That cumbersome jetpack, you know, it must have taken about three guys to get it on him in the first place. So the amount of time it takes him to get onto the balcony and actually get it fitted is um, is an absolute age. So he would have easily been shot, I think, by the time he actually got the jetpack on if he was doing it by himself. But, you know, again, not one of Q's best efforts, but, um, you know, possibly one of the more memorable gadgets, I think. So it's on to the next segment, which is Delve Deeply. And this week we're delving deeply, delving a second time into the United States of America. Our brothers from Langley can't resist a second bite of the cherry. So I thought we could focus on Las Vegas, the setting of Diamonds Are Forever. Great location in theory, although maybe Adam would disagree, but it proved rather impossible to shoot those car chase scenes without hordes of people standing and watching. Uh, Las Vegas, we see in the film, is very much the Vegas of the 70s. Many of the hotels we see in those aerial shots and some of the shooting locations are no longer in existence. For example, the Riviera Hotel is where Bond meets plenty operated between 1955 and 2015 before its demolition. However, there are a few shooting locations that do still exist. The Circus Circus is where Tiffany makes her escape from the useless Felix Leiter, and also the Westgate Hotel, which uh, doubled as the White House. You can visit those ones in Las Vegas. You can also still visit the Palm Boulder Highway Mortuary and Cemetery, where Shady Tree utters the, the best insult in cinematic history. I think I saw one one person recently on Instagram uh, went there, and it looks fairly similar, actually, even 50 years on from the film. Also, we've got the Elrod House, which is still a very visible building along the hillside in Palm Springs, California. That one was Willard White's wintered Willard White's winter retreat with Bambi and Thumper, uh, but it is a private property nowadays, so please do admire from afar. And speaking of California, it's only right that we should talk about A View to a Kill, the Golden Gate Bridge, of course, Highway 101 in San Francisco. That one definitely still open to the public, although advisable not to reach it via blimp. Um, a popular scenic route is taken with a bicycle. These days, you can visit basicallyfree.com or goldstar.com for more information about their cycling tours, which might be quite a good way to visit the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, I do realize I've done two installments now of the USA without mentioning Sheriff J.W. Pepper, which is frankly not acceptable. So the final location I've chosen is the Willamette National Cemetery in Portland, Oregon, where you can pay your respects at the burial site of George Clifton James, World War II veteran, and of course, beloved actor. Oh, 
I didn't know he was there. That's really great. Uh, shame it's in Oregon. I don't think there's an awful lot else in Oregon, to be uh, to be brutally honest. Um, yeah, I, I will concede that the Las Vegas featured in Diamonds Are Forever is better Las Vegas, like the Fremont Street with the big waving cowboy, because it's a bit like Blackpool there. It's it's kind of old school and a bit old fashioned, and that was where the Rat Pack had their holds. If you ever watch Casino, the Scorsese film, it's, it's all kind of there, and then they sort of moan at the end of it about the sort of big Disneyland-style plastic monstrosities that moved in on the main strip down the road. So next up is Kilbranch, where Phil is going to continue the Die Another Day fan club and also share any listener questions. So over to you, Phil. Yes, thanks very much, Martin. So we had a couple of questions in this week. Ben got in touch with us with a theory that we've kind of brought up in the past um, about the the different M characters that we've seen over the years. So he was prophesizing that obviously Bernard Lee's M was called Miles. Ray Fiennes' M, as we know, is Mallory. But he's always wondered, um, obviously, what Judy Dench's kind of title is. And obviously he says it can't be Emma, as, uh, as Kincaid suggested. But there has been a theory on Twitter that if we, if you look very carefully on Sky at the end of Skyfall, when Bond is given the um, the porcelain bulldog, it's in a box that's monogrammed Olivia Mansfield. So, what do we think? Do we think that this could actually have been Judy Dench's M? Yeah, I always thought that Judy Dench's M works along two different timelines, doesn't it? So, I always assumed Olivia Mansfield was one of them. And then I think is it Barbara Maudsley? Is that the other? That's the other Judy Dench timeline, I think. I can't remember where I've got that name from, but uh, I assume those are the two. Yeah, it would make sense. I'd never heard of the Barbara Morsey one, but I did know the Olivia Mansfield. So yeah, it, it is safe to assume that that's the case. It, it's a hell of a thing to recruit, isn't it? They just decided we're not going to change the letter and we're not going to hire someone who doesn't have that letter prominently in their name. So whoever is going to be M, it has to be someone whose name, first name or surname begins with an M. So our next question that came in was, Kind of a fun one that's, um, we've kind of covered part of this for our top 007s in the past, but if you were having to choose your Desert Island Discs, obviously the popular Radio 4 programme, which, if any, Bond songs would make it to your list? Would you, obviously, seven I think you can choose from in total. I'd, I'd probably put Goldfinger in there. That's a song that always really, like, perks me up, makes me feel good. I know Christopher Nolan put the theme from Honor Majesty's Secret Service into his Desert Island disc, because obviously he loves that film. Beyond that, what would my Desert... Uh, I don't know, Star Trekking by The Firm? Oh, God. See, I'd put We Have All the Time in the World by Louis Armstrong, and I think that's a beautiful song. I think that's deserving to go in. Die Another Day? <laughs> yes I- and no. Speaking of Die Another Day, so as, as our listeners are probably well aware, we have a, a new campaign that we're running, really, to try and defend, you know, the film that gets probably the most criticism from Bond fans. So this week, it's my turn to try and come up with something that I really like about the film. And, and I'd like to say that I like the sense that it doesn't take its too seriously it feels a lot like the old Roger Moore films of of the 70s it feels very kind of there are slapstick elements to it and there's also elements that are quite sort of light-hearted obviously we've spoken before about there was a lot of focus on celebrating the 40th anniversary at this point in time of the film franchise and we get some sort of nice little moments obviously where Bond is in R's kind of secret lair and and they're discussing kind of the new gadget he's going to get and obviously we get this great moment of the kind of nostalgic look back at some of Bond's previous entries into the franchise so of course you get things like the Acro Star and you get a funny little moment where Bond sniffs what we believe is Rosa Klebs poison tipped shoe 
Um, I also like the sense that there's kind of more of a focus on quite strong female characters. Obviously, it's, it's perhaps not done in the best way, but, you know, obviously, at least they were trying to give more credit to, um, you know, Jinx and to Rosamund Pike's character as Miranda Frost. So there are, there are good points of that side of things. You know, obviously, they are trying to give more emphasis on the Bond villain being a kind of independent and a strong-willed female, but also... So on a Bond ally being a really strong-willed and, and, you know, an independent female, you know, perhaps the writing and the direction isn't as strong as it could be. But overall, there are moments in the film where, you know, we can see what they were trying to achieve with this. You know, we can see that they were trying to achieve, um, you know, a really strong character-driven film. And, and maybe they missed the mark, but, you know, we can respect it for what it was it was trying to achieve. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! So that brings us nicely to the end of the episode, the quiz. So it's a quiz that's going to be hosted by Adam, so thankfully he can't win it. Gives us even more pressure, doesn't it, Phil, to uh, to get the win for uh, for these ones? We need to really book our ideas up, don't we, Martin? I think it's winner-takes-all for us doing this one. It is. So uh, over to Adam. What has he got for us this time? Thank you very much, Martin. Um, so, because it's been a little while now since we all actually watched these films last year, I'm going to test how well you remember the chronological sequence of events in certain films. So all I'm going to do, three questions each, I'm going to give you a film and three scenes which take place in that film. All you have to do is tell me which one happened first in it. It's as simple as that. Which of these scenes came first? Uh, so who wants to start us off? Um, I'll tell you what, we'll start with Martin because the first film is Live and Let Die. So, which of these scenes happens first? The death of Rosie Carver, Mrs. Bell's flying lesson, or Bond breaking into Solitaire's palace? Uh, let's go. Let's go, Mrs. Bell. Uh, well, that was actually the last of these scenes uh, to take place. The first is the death of Rosie Carver, after which Bond breaks into Solitaire's palace, after which they are both at the airfield. She is kidnapped, Solitaire. Bond meets Mrs. Bell. So, slipped up on the first one. Phil, can you take an early advantage? Your film, you'll be thrilled to know, is Thunderball. Which of these scenes comes first? The death of Paula, Fiona sleeps with Bond, or Quist is fed to the sharks? I think it's the death of Paula first, because doesn't Bond sleep with Fiona after that? Yes, he does, but unfortunately, Quist is fed to the sharks before that. Oh. We only we only really see the death of Paula afterwards when Bond uh, is uh, raiding, what's it called? Palmyra, that's the one. Uh, so, neck and neck on naught, Martin, you've now got your favourite. It's a Dalton. It's the Living Daylights. Pushkin's fake assassination, Necros killing Saunders, or Bond first meeting Felix Leiter. This is really annoying because I know this one. Unsurprisingly, I don't know this one, but I'll guess Bond meeting Leiter. I'm afraid not. That and the Pushkin assassination happened in Tangiers. Necros killing Saunders happens in Vienna, Austria, which is earlier in the film, so still stuck on naught. Phil, your next film is Die Another Day, which happens first. The fight at the fencing club, Bond storming Los Organos, or the appearance of peaceful fountains of desire. The appearance of peaceful fountains because she's the masseuse isn't she when he's in the hotel room at hong kong harbour yeah you got the character absolutely right and she does appear first before those other scenes so martin you've got to get this to stay in the game it's from on her majesty's secret service draco's birthday at the ballroom the robbing of jabruda gumbolt safe 
Bond's first meeting with Sir Hilary Bray? Uh, let's guess. All of them have been guesses. I've got to get one out of three, surely, haven't I? Let's guess Gumbolt. I'm afraid not. You've not worked this out very well because they only learn who Gumbold is after Draco's birthday, which is the number one scene. So that does mean, having gotten all of his questions wrong, Martin loses. Phil, you are the winner. Your last one, incidentally, would have been Quantum of Solace, which of these scenes takes place first, the meeting at the Opera House, Bond's first meeting with Camille, or the return of Rennie Mathis? Uh, well, surely he meets Camille first, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. so you'd have got that one too, Neil. So well done, Phil. You get your first win of the series. Yes, I'm off the mark. Finally, it's a good, it's a good day. The listeners can't see, but the look of delight on Phil's face. <laughs> I'm almost glad that I got everything wrong there. I, I did a little fist bump then. I did a little... Like a little yes to myself. So congratulations, Phil. You've got a point. Catching up with Adam now on the Cubby Cup competition. So that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll be taking a short break in Series 3, but thanks a lot for joining us this time. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. on a safe journey. I always feel they miss a scene at the end of this after Bond has totaled it, when he realises now that he's just got to use public transport to get everywhere, because his ride's completely gone. I just wanted a scene of Brosnan in the car park. Oh no, I've got to get to the airport. I'm, I'm going to have to find a bus. <laughs>